Hello and welcome to the Minds on the Frontline podcast, brought to you by the Wayne State University Frontline Strong Together 5 program. I'm Jeff Lassers, one of the hosts of the podcast, and I've been a professional firefighter, paramedic, educator, and content creator for 19 years. Minds on the Frontline is co-hosted by Mike Mattern, who is also a professional firefighter and paramedic with 17 years experience. In addition, Mike is a peer support team member for his fire department and the Frontline Strong Together 5 program, as well as the chair of the Michigan Professional Firefighters Union Behavioral Health Committee and a board member of the Michigan Crisis Response Association. Bottom line, Mike has training and experience with frontline worker mental and behavioral health. On the other hand, I do not. My role is to produce this show, whereas Mike is our resident subject matter expert. Together, we hope to inform, educate, and entertain first responders, their families, and the public regarding the realities of frontline work-related mental health challenges. In this episode, we welcome back Manisha Leary and introduce you to Michelle Potter. Manisha Leary is a trained psychotherapist with a focus on trauma. She is also the manager of the Frontline Strong Together 5 program. Michelle Potter is a clinical therapist and owner of MRP Counseling in Plymouth, Michigan. Michelle is also the clinical director for the Dearborn Fire Department Peer Support Team. Manisha and Michelle are both culturally competent clinicians that each have a great deal of experience helping frontline workers. During this episode, Manisha and Michelle will help us express what it means for a clinician to be culturally competent and why that matters. This turned out to be a fantastic episode that provides a clear and concise overview of the value and role of culturally competent clinicians for frontline workers. Enjoy the show. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Hey, how are you? I'm good. So we got some guests here today, but Manisha, welcome back. Give everybody an overview who you are, what you do, and where you do it. I am Manisha Leary. I am the uh, program manager for Frontline Strong Together, better known as FSD5. I'm also a trained psychotherapist. I have a background in trauma. I've been doing the work for about 12 years and been working with first responders for the last three. Welcome You're always back. welcome back, yes. you know. You're <laughs> kind of coordinating all this, so I don't think yeah. I have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> So we're also here with Michelle Potter. Michelle Potter, same question. Who are you? What do you do? Where do you do it? I'm Michelle Potter. I'm a clinical therapist and owner of MRP Counseling in Plymouth, Michigan. I specialize in working with people with trauma, and I've been doing that for the last 12 years. Right on. What got you into all that? I come from a family of therapists, so it's kind of in my DNA. It's something I've always wanted to do, and I fell into working with trauma when I was at Washtenaw County CMH. When I went into private practice, I just continued on that path. Oh, right on. So, Mike Mattern, you invited this young lady to join us. Yes, I did. And she is involved directly with the Dearborn Fire Department's peer support team. Give everybody an overview of why Michelle and not somebody else in the community. When we started our team and we needed a clinical director to start our team, we kind of went out there and started looking for people who were well-respected within the first responder community and someone who really got it who really knew how to work with first responders. We got a a lot of good feedback with her and and what she has done. So that's how we brought her on for our clinical director. And so we're really here to really talk about that cultural competence. So I'm assuming that you brought Michelle on because she showed those characteristics that you wanted to have around your personnel. They're going to be reaching out for help because just like children need a specific type of guidance and therapy, so do first responders, so do the elderly even. Every demographic of human has these nuanced characteristics. So what does culturally competent mean? 
Culturally competent means the clinicians who really get what we do. They have taken the time to not just read the books about who we are, you know, what kind of traumas we deal with, those types of things, but it really it's the clinicians who get the culture of each of these disciplines because the culture within the police department or EMS department or fire department are all different. And those little nuances is what makes us us. When the clinician can really get in there and realize, okay, what makes these guys tick? That's the thing that makes them very good at what they're doing and dealing with us. Because for the longest time, we never had that. We had a lot of clinicians who, I like to call them heat seekers. They like to try to find the action or the people who are like, oh, I want to hear all the stories or people in general who we figure out are just bullshitting us when they're like, oh yeah, I work with first responders, blah, blah, blah. Now we'll we'll figure it out about five minutes that you're totally bullshitting us and that's what we've had. So when you find that culturally competent clinician, it's helpful because you're like, okay, they get it. They're not just here to hear my stories. They get what I'm going through. Yeah. It's almost like the people that could see the signal through the noise. Yes, absolutely. They're not generalizing us in what they think a first responder is, but recognizing what happens to us throughout our lives and our career. Yes. And, it, and it's easy to see. I mean, you can have a million different certificates on the wall from the highest regarded schools, but when somebody's culturally competent, that means a lot more to first responders than wherever you came from or your background or whatever it may be. You could be from Harvard and have no idea what we do. We're not going to use you. You could be from the community college, but you've got a personality that matches with us and you understand our culture, you're in. That's more important to us than where you went to school or any of your background. Totally. And you know, in my role in this podcast is kind of help curate the message, but I yield to you on who's culturally competent, who's not. We're kind of sitting with two We're people. We're sitting with two are. of them right now. <laughs> right. So let me ask the two of you ladies, how does a clinician become culturally competent for first responders? Manisha, we'll start with you. So I am going to echo what Mike said a little bit. I think it has a lot to do with the personality of the clinician. You have to want to kind of humble yourself. You really need to be able to do that, especially when you have, you know, the alphabet soup behind your name. You have these big degrees behind your name. For me, when I got into this work, I was like, hey, I'm a trauma therapist. I've done this for a while. Michelle probably knows this. Like, I can do this. This is great. And quickly had to be like, okay, let me start from scratch. So becoming a culturally competent clinician that works with first responders is, learning the discipline that you want to work with. So if whether it's fire, police, EMS, corrections, 911, dispatchers, you have to get in and do ride along, shadow, be a part of what's going on in the community, understand what happens in the community. Again, from the job aspect, you've got to be able to know where some of the stressors from these different disciplines, what they work with. And then I think experiencing that as much as you can. So again, with the ride alongs, being there, having conversations, doing your research, again, on the community that you're working in. You have to understand what the concerns are because it's different from community to community. And then using the skills that you've learned as a clinician, as a trauma-trained therapist, if that's your background, and using that in a way that helps the discipline or the first responder you're working with. I think something that a lot of clinicians don't remember when they say, oh, I absolutely can work with first responders is our goal is to do no harm. So if you're not doing the work to make sure that you understand who you're seeing, what their concerns are, what their stresses are, you're going to do more harm. And so becoming culturally competent is just not the same as reading a book or knowing the definition of cultural competency. It's actually getting in and doing the work. So So it's that field work that kind of seals the deal. Yeah, it's the field work and being able to kind of take a different learning path. It's very different from what we learn in the classroom. It's very different from what we learn in trainings. It's getting yourself in there to say, I need to understand a little bit more. 
Not that you want to put yourself in the shoes because we're not trying to be heat seekers or go in and be first responders, but we want to be able to have an understanding so that we're not either re-traumatizing ourselves from what we hear or not being able to treat the person properly. Yeah, and that understanding probably helps you identify the proper treatment path and clinicians for them. Absolutely. Because it's it, once you assume anything, especially when you're talking medicine, yes. right, you're already going down a bad road. You might be right. There's a chance, you know, just making a guess at any point in time, you're going to be right. But the most educated guess, I'm guessing, allows you to really understand the conditions under which that's happening so that you can prescribe the right treatment plan for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's super important because first responders in particular, they're not one size fit all at all. Right. <laughs> so you might see a depression patient and be like, okay, I can traditionally do this or, yeah. you know, anxiety patient, I can traditionally do this. For first responders, it's all going to look very different because their careers are a big part of who they are which that may not be the case for a lot of everyday citizens. And so we want to make sure that we're not giving any cookie cutter type advice or treatment in, in any kind of space. Right. There's just so. not a protocol to follow for when you see this do that, like it is for us there in 911. Yeah. For you guys, it's square one. The and time. then always going back to the drawing board on that person. It's like building the plane while you're flying it. (laughs) I'd prefer a boat at that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, building the plane or the boat, but also being the captain. Like you're able Mm -hmm. to handle it. You're able to say, I'm not afraid to take this road with you. I'm not afraid to be on this path with you. And I don't know what's going to happen. So you can't promise those things, but we'll get through it together. Nicely put. Michelle, any follow up to that? So I think it's really important to understand the multi-layered stresses that first responders have. It's not just the job and the bad calls. It's coming home after a 24-hour shift and having a spouse thrust the kid at you and go, it's your turn now. It's having to worry about finances. It's worrying about what's administration going to do to my job tomorrow. What are the politicians over the administration going to do to my job tomorrow? What does our budget look like? Are we going to have enough money for new equipment? These are all things that you need to understand because when these folks come to you, they're saying, yeah, I had this bad call. But then you peel back the layers and there's so much more that you have to work with, which goes to your point of there's no one size fits all. It's what is the best way to weave together those treatment options I know to fit this one individual sitting in front of me today. A couple of points from a first responder or peer support view. The first one is getting out there and riding or going to do third rides. I can't tell how many times that has come up when we're trying to get somebody in to see a clinician. It goes into the other point you said where it says, first, do no harm. A lot of first responders have gone to see clinicians who are not built to deal with us and they got burned. And so they are very hesitant to go see another clinician. And what we've seen is when we talk about clinicians, it's, well, this clinician came and did a third ride with us. Oh, really? Yeah. That kind of builds a little bit of credibility with that clinician that, okay, they're actually taking the time to understand us. I'm going to give this person a shot. And you may only get that one shot, and they'll never go back to another clinician again. So what Manisha and Michelle are talking about, to be that culturally competent clinician, you have to put the time in to really do that. And from a first responder perspective, we see when the people are doing that, and that's what helps get people to those clinicians. That's huge, what they're talking about. Yeah. That begs the question, Manisha, you manage a program with the Frontline Strong Together Five, and it kind of relies on us having access to culturally competent clinicians 
And not nearly 100% of the people available in the world are culturally competent. So how do you identify and distribute them to my brothers and sisters out there who may need help? Yeah, that's a good question. So on the FST5.org website, we have a place where first responders and their families can go and find a list of culturally competent clinicians. And I think what we've done here at FST5, and we're continuously like updating how we do things, but we started out with reaching out to the first responders that we knew throughout the state and getting word of mouth. Word of mouth is huge for first responders because if you find a clinician that's not only culturally competent, but is either doing the work and you feel like they're doing it really well with you, it's important for us to kind of have that as a resource and have that person as a resource. So that was important for us to kind of start with the base there. And then, of course, we go through making sure that their licensure and their treatment modalities that that they have specialties in are things that we need first responders to have access to. So PTSD treatment, anxiety and depression treatment, having knowledge about burnout understanding how the job works. So we want to make sure that these clinicians have either done ride-alongs before and or have access to doing them with our program. So we can cook them up and connect them with first spider groups in their communities. Um, Another thing that we use to vet is we make sure that our clinicians tell us exactly who they're comfortable working with. So just because we're FST5 and we cover fire, police, EMS, corrections, and 911 dispatch, everyone doesn't work with all five disciplines. Some people may be really comfortable working with fire. They may be, just like Michelle here, generational therapists and kind of have that in the family and used to working with first responders there or police only. And so we want to make sure that people know that. We want to send them to the right place. It seems like there's maybe even some clinicians that come out of those communities and find a new occupation. Yes. And they want to go serve their family. Mm -hmm. So retired firefighters I know are going back to school, retired cops. That's great. Yeah, yeah. What better person to help out in that transitionary time in history? Absolutely. And that's another actually really special thing about the list that we have is that quite a few of the people that are on the list are actually active or retired or responders. So they know the world and they know the culture and they go into retirement and or part-time work and say, we really need to focus on the mental health of my peers and the people that have chosen to take these careers and give their 25 or more years to the work that they do to help their communities every day. It's a lot to become a culturally competent clinician. And there has been some people that didn't make the list. (laughs) There's been some people that we've had to say, sorry, this doesn't work. You haven't been able to kind of meet our threshold, but it doesn't mean that they can't do that. It doesn't mean that we won't help them get there if they're interested in truly working with first responders. So. Michelle, what are those characteristics of a person in your position that you would recommend towards maybe helping first responders? Because sometimes the people that want to be there, although their heart's in the right place, they may not be good at it. I wanted to play center for the Red Wings, but they never called, right? So no matter how much I wanted that, you know, it's one of those things. So I think sometimes that duty calls upon us in weird ways. So what types of people with your type of education and training should we be looking for and maybe looking to help us? I think we touched on it earlier when we talked about the personality. We have to, as a clinician working with this population, understand that we hear some pretty heinous stuff sometimes. It can be pretty raw. The language can be pretty raw. And you have to be able to roll with that. I have to say that it fits my personality really well. (laughs) And so you have to look for those folks who aren't shy aren't going to be completely shocked by the things they hear and then kind of groom that. I think a lot of it is just being real. You know what I mean? I think when you boil it down, it's just being real and being less clinical and more real. You know, how we talk to each other is very informal. Within the communities, we talk to each other very informal. 
that's what we're good at. We're not necessarily good with the clinical where you sit back, look down, the glasses are well, at the end of the Well, it's almost like we sit down and, like we're going to class or something. Well, like, oh, time it. to learn. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. And, 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 I, and I think the, the, they're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, the people that walk in with the, you know, the leather patches on the tweed jacket, you're kind of losing us right from the beginning. You know, your penny loafers tell me you've never walked a step in a fire station, but the person that sits down and talks to me like we're talking over coffee, that's the clinician that you want. You don't want the clinical person who's looking at you with the notepad and, you know. Right. And I think sometimes people think we want some type of alpha to walk through the door and act all like, no, we no, just, just I want somebody you want to hang out with giggle. Like, yeah. Half the right. battle is knowing what a good joke is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's important. That's actually important that you said the joke part, because a lot of the first responders that we work with have dark humor. And I know a lot of clinicians kind of shy away from that or think that's a trigger. And honestly, it's just a coping mechanism that most first responders use to be able to deal with or compartmentalize the things that they see and go through every day. So you're going to have to roll with it. Like, I don't have the fanciest jokes that you guys have, but I get it. And it's okay. You know, like I can understand it's happening. So um, I think that. That's the most that's polite a, way yes, to yes. say like, She's being very polite right now. I don't have the jokes. Now I have a question. Why is it that the clinicians tend to shy away from that, even though they know that's something that works for us? Well, I can't speak for every clinician in the world, and I know, and I will say this, it's important that first responders and their families kind of keep in mind that clinicians come in all different shapes and sizes and personalities. And, Absolutely. And just because someone looks a certain way doesn't mean that they wouldn't be good at what they do or wouldn't be able to help you. So I will definitely say that. And I think that's important to put out there because we will see a lot of people like doctors, physicians, clinicians, and be like, oh, they're not going to work with us. And they may actually really end up being great. But I think... Needless to say, the dark humor for us often translates in the trauma world that there's something deeper and buried. And traditionally, someone kind of laughing through that or trying not to deal with it is avoidance in our eyes. And so most clinicians will take that pretty seriously. But again, depending on the type of clinician you are, that may not be a bad thing, right? You just got to be able to understand it. And I think if you can get past the fact that you may not curse every single day in your life, or you may not tell these crazy jokes every single day in your life, that doesn't mean that the person that you're talking to is morbid or unfixable or, you know, like they're they're lost because they use this language or they talk like this every day. That's who they are. Oh, that's interesting. I just never, I've never heard that before. Is there a personality type that's drawn to your profession the same way there's a personality type that's drawn to our profession, knowing that first responders and clinicians is a very broad statements, and then there's firefighters, there's cops, there's dispatchers, so we get in these nuances. Is it kind of similar for clinicians on that end where it does draw a certain type of person and then the specialty draws even different personalities? I think so. I think that as a whole, clinicians just want to help. They want to be there. They want to connect and bring people to their best possible place. But then you drive yourself towards your specialty. As I said earlier, trauma was something that I fell into. I was at CMH. Then I fell into working with first responders when I went into private practice, and that was just a referral from an EAP. I had never worked with a first responder before. Manisha said, you know, oh, I got this. I work with trauma. Wow, I had a big learning curve, and it took a lot of time and energy, and it's no different for clinicians as a whole. We find that pocket or that niche that really fits us, but it takes the training and the time and the energy to really become competent at it. I guess when we come across somebody that we don't think cuts the mustard yet, 
maybe we should recognize they're not there yet a little bit and kind of give them some slack. You're kind of making me feel bad for <laughs> talking a little bit of smack of people coming in and out of my firehouse. But so, I, yeah, I get it. Maybe they're just not quite there yet. And eventually they will get there. Yeah. So being in your position, you have lots of opportunity to help. But I think there's also some threats we need to be aware of. So how do clinicians like yourselves maintain your own behavioral health while helping others? Because we got to protect ourselves while helping others. I'm sure it's kind of similar to you guys. Very similar. The same things that we preach to our clients, the self-care, getting adequate sleep, good nutrition, exercise, socialization, and seeking our own behavioral health services to make sure that we are operating at our peak performance. I 100% agree with everything Michelle just said. I think one of the things that I tell new clinicians getting into this work is if you have not seen your own therapist, you're not going to make it. Like, you're not going to make doing this. I actually find a lot of clinicians who are like, I would never talk to someone. I would never see a clinician that's seeing a clinician. And I'm like, and I would never go to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I would never go to you. Yep. Because you're not working on yourself. The th- you have to have a place to offload this, the things that you hear to be able to work through your own mental health and behavioral health to make sure you're maximizing your coping skills that work best for you and not falling into a hole. I think the one thing that Michelle said that ties clinicians and first responders together is we all want to help, right? But if we tell you guys that you have to offload some of this stuff to us, we have to do the same thing. That's how we keep ourselves sharp. That's how we keep ourselves going. And that's how we all make it through having 25 plus years in a career, right? So it's all of the same things that you will hear us telling you we're actually doing. And when I'm seeing my first responders directly, nine times out of 10, the things that I'm having them work on are the things that I'm currently using, like deep breathing, right? So when I'm working through somebody that's struggling with panic attacks or um, needing to have that moment right on the job, I'm like, hey, three seconds in, hold, three seconds out, hold, quiet your thinking. I literally do this multiple times in a day, right? So I think that also contributes to us being real, right? We have to normalize that this is okay. Yeah, it's almost to- like we got to put a pause in the professionals, yeah. like, hang on, we're people, right? Like, okay, let's, we're people. let's just all hug and hang, hold hands for two, two seconds. Like, <sighs> yeah. All right, cool. Now back to business. You're right. It's back that reset business. we all need is that biological reminder that it's not that big a deal when yeah. it is that big a deal. Yeah. I tell people when they come in to see us, I'm like, I'm going to put away my clinician witch's nose that has the big ward on it, right. not this big, horrible person. <laughs> like, I just want you to, like, come in and not be fearful not think that I'm there to push medications or to, you know, tweak your brain or anything like that. Totally there to help. And I think for first responders hearing this, I really want them to know that they really drive their treatment. They drive their treatment plans. They drive how the sessions go. They drive that. So the more that they're involved, the more they're going to get out of it. Since the both of you have joined into helping first responders, it's come at a time in your learning curve, really, through COVID even. And lots of humans are accepting help more often than not. And I'm sure that's spilling over in our first responder community since now we have more assets available to actually reach out to. So are you seeing more of an acceptance among first responders to ask for help or do you still see resistance? I see both. There is more acceptance, but there's still that resistance. I think there's that old school line of thought of if you can't cut it, get out. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But I think the newer generations of firefighters are really starting to embrace it. So for me, when I started doing the work of working with FSD5 and um, working with first responders, I made the decision to solely see first responders. I see all of the disciplines definitely reaching out in some way, shape, or form. 
I won't say that they're definitely reaching out directly to clinicians, but I see a lot of people tapping into their peers. I see a lot of people tapping into their family members. And then that may be how eventually they come to us. But I think people are talking about it a lot more in all five disciplines. The reality is FST5 wouldn't be here if it wasn't such a huge stigma. <laughs> so I think it's still there. And I think there's still a big push to get people to like, call us and just reach out to us directly. But And it's really socializing the acceptance of the fact that we all need it. Yeah. yeah. Well, like you're saying, like you're teaching people things that you're doing and learning about and improving on as a human being all the time. So for all those clinicians that are on or would like to be on a peer support team that helps out fire, EMS, police, dispatchers, and corrections officers, what are the threats and challenges faced by those individuals? What are they getting into? They're hearing a lot of the bad stuff. There is something called vicarious trauma. When you hear enough of it, it piles up on you. And that's why I mentioned earlier the need for seeking our own mental health services to have a place to unload that. I think that is the biggest concern for someone who serves on a peer support team. That is a great answer. I think the other part that is unique about being a clinician on a peer support team is two things. One is you have to be trained in CISM work and how to handle critical incidences. So I think that's super important. Two, I think. Being a clinician on a peer support team, you become the clinician for the team. So it may not just being called for a critical incident or actually showing up to a critical incident and needing to be there, but your team relies on you. You are a part of the team. So I think that it becomes an interesting place, right? You, your guys may say, hey, I'm thinking this way or someone talked to me about this and I just want to run it past you. And it's important that if you take on the role to be a clinician for a peer support team, that you're willing to do that. Like you need to know that it's supporting the team as well. I think it's just being present. I've talked to some peer teams that have clinical directors or clinicians, and they only see them when bad stuff happens. It's going in there and doing the trainings with them and those types of things. That helps with a lot of that stuff. It gets them familiar with the team and how things operate and the people that you're working with. Because when we talk about peer support, we tell every team, you need to go take care of yourself. So they should be seeing a clinician once or twice a year to check up on themselves. What's better than to see the person who's overseeing your team? You know, a lot of people do that. So you're not just picking the clinician for the department or the team that you're working for. You're picking the clinician for the team members of that peer support team. So it's pretty important to find that right person. Does that connection to the peer support team by the clinician help the clinician get a pulse of the entire department? Meaning that like a Michelle wouldn't have to see all, you know, 80 to 100 personnel that you have. Rather than you guys are always out there talking, mingling with them and get a pulse and then kind of discuss it privately. I mean, Michelle can speak to it from her perspective, but from my perspective, I think it, I think it definitely helps. I mean, our peer team helps departments from across Michigan. I mean, it doesn't matter where you're from and we've helped peer teams in other states even. It helps with that. But I think from my perspective, I think it does. I can't speak for the clinical portion of it, but I think having that affiliation with a certain team does buy you some street cred. So you feel like your medical director from that perspective is connected to the department through its peer support team. And do you feel that way, Michelle? I do. I think being on the peer support team has given me the credibility and legitimacy amongst the whole membership. I've always vetted per se. Yeah, totally. You absolutely were. They're yeah. not going to hide it either. <laughs> yeah. So it has definitely been a connection for the whole department. 
I could see how those two bodies working in sync helps the greater good in that specific element. So if that's what's going on now in the best case scenario at our departments, and not every department has the capacity to bring on somebody like Michelle, which is why an FST5 exists so that you have somewhere to go. And like you said, FST5 wouldn't exist if we had all these resources everywhere and it was working right. So it's there for a need. But we're certainly gearing for an improved future. So what is the future of culturally competent clinicians for first responders? Are you guys going to like make a subject matter expertise out of this or what? Absolutely. I would love to do that. And actually, that is part of what we are hoping to do with FST5 is to get in with universities and community colleges to start first responder tracks in the schools. So in school social work and counseling departments to see if we can get these to be specific tracks that people go into doing this work full time with first responders. I will acknowledge this, that frontline workers or first responders There's a lot of other disciplines that fall into that category as well, not just the five that we work with here. So I just want to make sure that people out there that are listening, we understand that there's other disciplines that fall into that. But our goal is to help the state of Michigan become a place where clinicians can use their education to directly go into a first responder track. So that's our goal here. That's awesome. With master's level clinicians, when they graduate, they're only limited licensed So they need 4,000 hours of supervision. And if there were programs like Manisha's talking about, then there could be those of us who are competent in working with first responders to be the supervisors for those 4,000 hours to help groom them even further in actually doing the work, not just studying the work. Yeah, and then it allows that person to understand a pathway to bring in another person and another person and another person until we backfill all these roles that we need. Yeah. We're already short on first responders. That's pretty common knowledge. But there's a huge shortage on clinicians. Absolutely. You can't find like normal citizen, average Joe, just having a panic attack, having a rough time just getting in anywhere. Right. Let alone a first responder. We talked about earlier about how the culture's changed. The culture has changed that I've seen in this. People are willing to go see a clinician now. Whereas before it was kind of like, ooh, I don't necessarily want to do that. Mm -hmm. With peer support and with the stuff that we've been doing, it's a lot easier for people to ask for a clinician's phone number. Hey, who do you guys have? Who's somebody good who I can talk to? That kind of stuff. Where we're running into problems now is exactly what these guys are talking about, is having availability of those culturally competent clinicians because there's so few of them that the ones that are there, I mean, their schedules are packed. And you got somebody that needs to get in and talk to someone sooner than later. It's sometimes kind of a stressful situation to try to get somebody in. So if we can get this stuff together and get the number of culturally competent clinicians up to where we need them, it's going to change the game completely because right now it's tough. It is. The clinicians that are out there doing it are making the time, but eventually we're going to need more. Absolutely. Any closing thoughts? I guess I would just say that it's tough work, but it's rewarding work. It really is. Working with first responders really fulfills that need that clinicians look for to help and to make sure that they're doing good work and to make you feel like you're doing good work. So I don't want anyone to be shying away from taking the next step to working with first responder. And if there are any clinicians out there, so I'll just do a quick call of action. If there's any clinicians out there that have experience that are in the state of Michigan or are even outside of the state, because telehealth is a thing that we want to definitely promote. So if there's any clinicians out there that are interested in learning more about working with first responders, please contact us at fsd5.org. Awesome. 
I just want to thank you for having me here today. Oh, we appreciate you driving no, we, all the way out here. Yeah, we appreciate you coming out here. And all the hard work you're doing? Yes. Thank Seriously. You. Absolutely. Thanks for doing the real work. We just talk about it. You actually have to go <laughs> <Yeah>. do it. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're working with a tough group of knuckleheads, so. Yeah. yeah. She keeps us in line. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I try. It's tougher to... For me, I go on a patient. I drop them off, and it could be a happy story. It could be a bad story. I don't got to see him again. She's got to deal with us all the time. Yeah, Poor pretty her. much. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. One closing remark that I would like to say is to all the first responders out there who are listening, and you're kind of wondering, I've been to a clinician before, and it was a bad experience. I'm never going back. Or you've never been, and you know you think they're going to lay you down on the couch and, and pick your brain and all this other stuff. From experience myself, I mean, I go every two weeks. I've been going every two weeks for a long time. Never once have I had those experiences where you feel uncomfortable or whatever. A lot of times you just go in there, you sit on the couch, you have a coffee in your hand, and you basically shoot the shit for an hour. And that's what it's like. And don't be afraid to go in there and do it because when you find the culturally competent clinicians that you go talk to, that's exactly what it's like. And don't be afraid to make the phone call, find the clinicians who are already vetted. If you've been there before where you've been burned and you've had some bad experiences with clinicians like we talked about before, give them a second chance. Give these clinicians, you got two sitting here right in front of you and FST5 has a whole bunch on the website. Find them and give them a chance and it'll make a huge difference. There's multiple people that I've helped find clinicians who have said, well, I go talk to this person, but they're not very good. Or I've been with this person for five years and I think it's pretty stale. I don't know if there's something different that this person's going to do. Two weeks later, I get a phone call and they're like, I've made more progress in the past three weeks than I have in the past five years. So if you're sitting there and you're wondering, you're thinking, all right, should I do this? Yes, you should. Number one. Number two, how do I do this? It's very simple. You can get on www.fst5.org or you can call the phone number and get in touch with a clinician. It's really not that big a deal. I've been there. I sit on the couch every two weeks. It's not that big a deal. It's literally like- Mine was a chair. Couch. It's a very nice couch, actually. It's very, right. very plush couch. It's very, yeah, mine, mine's a chair. very comfortable. Oh, I fancy. Like mine. Yes. Oh, no, it's very, it's very comfortable. Very comfortable. Yes. Couch makes me feel like somebody else is going to come in and sit down. It's kind of like the couch on Friends. You know what I mean? It's, very, it's just like, it's very comforting and you just hang out and you got a coffee or whatever. And then 45 minutes later, you look at the clock, you're like, well, shit, that went by quick. What about a bean bag? <laughs> like a Papasan chair, maybe? One of, those, one of those old egg chairs from the 70s, <laughs> yes. you know what I mean? Like maybe a hammock. A hammock would be nice. Um, you know? That Honestly, would be nice. For real. Yeah. But that, that's all I got to say. I mean, don't be afraid to, to make the call. It's really not that scary of a thing to go in and talk to somebody. Great so. closing words, sir. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Manisha and Michelle, for joining us in the Minds on the Frontline podcast to discuss the value and role of culturally competent clinicians. We hope everyone enjoyed this episode. We have more great content coming out soon. Thank you for listening and have a great day.